morning. I trust everyone had a very good Thanksgiving. No one had a good Thanksgiving? No? Okay. I didn't hear an amen, a yes, not a clap. Maybe that means you did have a good Thanksgiving and you're still in that turkey comatose that we all go into. Anybody else feel guilty after you eat that, that and you're like, I've got to go to the gym right now after this nap. I mean, I feel guilty for like an hour or two and then I need a turkey sandwich. <laughs> it's because all that sodium delays the hunger for just a couple hours and then we need that food, that sustenance. Well, I am glad to be here with you. I've been looking forward to, to preaching this week, and uh, it's just, uh, well, it's God's gift to me um, to get to preach His Word. Um, it's really a high privilege, and I'm just excited to be here today, and um, I couldn't wait for Kathleen to get done with the music so that I could get up here to preach. I was leaning forward, like, I want to be up there. That's nothing to say about the music. In fact, while I was sitting there uh, singing the songs, my mind was so fully engaged in the words. And I had this thought. I thought, the highest part of worship is what we do with our minds during this time. Unfortunately, here in South Florida, it's customary to think that our hearts and our emotions are to be preeminent in the worship service. So that the worship service is about entertainment and about a spectacle. But the worship service is actually the moment of the week where we are to have our brains turned on. It's the moment where we are to be focused, where falling asleep is not something God wants us to do. It's something that is of no value to you. In fact, this passage that I'm going to read this morning, I hope will be a jolt in all of our lives, when we come to worship God. But more than when we come and thinking worship is something only that we do on Sunday, it is a moment-by-moment -moment attitude, a posture. It was Paul who said that in the sacrificing of our daily lives, in the giving over of our will, the self-sacrifice of our will to the will of God, submitting to Him, that that was our spiritual act of service, that our bodies were to be offered as a living sacrifice. That is our spiritual worship, that every moment is to be our spiritual worship. Our minds are to be engaged at every moment, taking every thought captive for Christ. Every thought, every single thought. Christians, turn your brains on this morning and be ready to listen to a very, very important sermon. D.A. Carson, a great Christian scholar in whom I am indebted to, especially for this study on the first couple chapters of the book of Corinthians, says this. He says, the ways of destroying the church, and I put there in parentheses, a church, the ways of destroying the church or a church, the church being the invisible body of Christ, all Christians everywhere, and the local church being those local assemblies, i.e. the Northwest Baptist Church. 
The ways of destroying the church or a church are many and colorful. You ever think about that? Somehow, a myth has crept up in the minds of Christians that the only way to destroy a church is by heresy. That is false and must be abandoned. Apathy may take longer, but it is equally as dangerous. Listen to the warning that Carson gives. Raw factionalism will do it. That is, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I only come when Andrew's preaching, I only come when uh, Rudy is preaching, I only come when Dave is preaching, I'm leaving if Andrew's leaving, I'm leaving if Dave is leaving. That is called raw factionalism. It is, I am of the body that is under the teaching or tutelage of Dave or Andrew or Paul or Cephas or Christ. It'll destroy a church. Let me just go back. The ways of destroying the church or a church are many and colorful and one of the ways to do it You say, you're coming out strong right out of the gate. Yeah, I finally slept off that turkey. They're many and they're colorful. And one of those ways that we need to be aware of right now is this one, raw factionalism. Rank heresy will do it. What is heresy? It means false teaching. It means here's the the standard and anything that deviates away from the standard is wrong and should not be followed. And by the way, it doesn't always come in its most perverse and grotesque ways. It's oftentimes very, very subtle. In fact, in order for heresy to be effective, it actually has to be subtle to Christians. And it has to sound good. The only way for poison to be effective is not to have a bottle that says hemlock on it. It's to put it in a sweet potato pie. It's to put it in an apple. It's to dress it up and make it look pretty so that we eat the thing and we are actually digesting poison and it's killing us. And many churches around America and I dare say around the world today especially, unfortunately, in the recesses of Africa, there is false teaching that is being promoted with the sweetness, the sweetness of triumphalism. Health, wealth, and prosperity. It all sounds great, and it is a poison that is killing God's people. The ways of destroying the church or a church are many and colorful. What I am saying this morning when I am echoing D.A. Carson's words is that this bow and arrow that I'm pointing out, it is is to every single one of your hearts, including my own, what am I doing today to destroy the church? You say, I'm not doing anything that I know of, but give me a moment. I hope to bring up something that might make you aware That you are dangerously 
dangerously flirting with destroying the temple of God. You say, but wait a minute, I thought destroying the temple of God was when we got a tattoo on our body. No, stop. The body and the stomach will perish together. It is the soul and the intents of the man that can destroy the church. Give me, give God's church a bunch of tattooed people who love him. I want to be a part of that church. Abandon this false notion today that because you don't have tattoos, brought your Bible, and are wearing a suit, that you are not destroying or could be destroying God's church. Goodness, this is going to be a two-part series. Raw factionalism will do it. Rank heresy will do it. Taking your eyes off the cross and letting other more peripheral matters dominate the agenda will do it. How much money are we bringing in as a church? One of the things I'm subject to, one of the sins that I have, I have had to repent of. How many people are here on Sunday? That's been a big thing for me because I wanted to know that I did something so good last week that more people heard about it this week and they came out and they wanted to be a part of this body. And we get up and we talk about it and we say, look at the way that the body is deteriorating. Look, people are leaving. Let them go and praise God for their going. Gideon didn't defeat the Midianites until 29,700 men left. Maybe God will not make this church a worthy church until every seat is empty. These are peripheral matters. God never tells us to get people in these pews. That's his job. He'll bring the people. The Bible says in Acts that the Lord adds to their number. But we are worried about these things. I, as your pastor, have been worried about these things. The accounting department has been worried about these things. The school has been worried about these things. You have been worried about these things. And they are peripheral. And they will destroy this church. Give me the morning to explain what I mean. Building the church with superficial conversions will and wonderful programs that rarely bring people into a deepening knowledge of the living God will also destroy the church. Where's your children's program? What happened to Iwana? Why don't we have a marriage class? Why don't we have a get off of drugs, an AA class? Why don't we have Anna? It'll destroy a church. Because everything that I'm describing, that Carson is describing, is not a church. It's not a church. 
It's an organization, but it has nothing to do with the organism of the living God. If this building burnt down this very moment, the Northwest Baptist Church would still exist in its people who have come together around the confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let them leave. Let the buildings break down. But do not forsake the message. At that point, we're no longer a church. We entertain, he says here, entertaining people to death, but never fostering the beauty of holiness or the centrality of self-crucifying love will build an assembly of religious people, but it will destroy the church of the living God. Oh, have you seen that church? It's got all the big screens. And, and when they opened up, they gave a tribute to Prince. There was a church here locally that it opened up the day after or the week after that Prince died. It opened up with an homage to Prince and they did Purple Rain. I guess to just deal with all of the people and to put on display the beautiful performers that they have. And to try and assuage the, the sorrow and the sadness that people were feeling because Prince had died. Like they knew him. Not only is Prince a Jehovah's Witness or was, that is not a Christian, but he's not God and he was glorified. Oh, but it was awesome. I'll be honest with you, better than anything you'll see at any of the clubs and any of the entertainment performances that are put on in South Florida on a weekend. That you pay to go see, and that was free. I'm telling you, it was awesome. The people dressed awesome. They sang awesome. They had awesome, uh, awesome stage pyrotechnics. It was awesome. But it's not the church. Hear me, please. I am begging with you. Listen to me. You say you are so animated. I've got till January 13th with you. You have got to listen to me. That is not the church. Gossip, prayerlessness, bitterness, sustained biblical illiteracy, self-promotion, materialism, all of these things and many more can destroy a church and to do so is dangerous. Oh, I haven't committed any of the big sins. I haven't murdered and I haven't committed adultery. Yeah, but you backbite. You gossip. Instead of doing what the manly thing is, what the mature person in Christ does, which is go to their face, and I've been guilty of this myself, go to the face of the person and say, you've sinned, brother. You've sinned, sister. Oh, no, we can't judge. We can't say another person is a sinner. That's not judging. The Christian says, this is the word. This is the mark. You're missing it. I know for a fact you're missing it because here's the truth and you're not doing it. And I love you. Stop. Let's reconcile. That's the church. But we gossip. Oh, did you hear what so-and-so did? So-and-so is pregnant. Yeah, I did. I remember when they were raising that child. They never disciplined her. And now look at her. She's pregnant. 
is. And God, I'm not like her. But you're gossiping and you're destroying God's body by being divisive. Instead of going to that person and saying, sister, what the heck? You're not, you're not married, are you? No. Then you're living in sin. Have you repented? Yes. Then I accept you back in, sister. You should probably bring this before the church and let the church know that you have repented to God. Oh, but that's embarrassing. So what? It's right. And gossip destroys the church. And as Carson says, not because Carson thought this up, but because Carson is being faithful to the word of God, this is a dangerous thing to do. Why? Because if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. You say, but that's talking about the body. No, it's not. It's talking about the church. And the unfortunate reality, the unfortunate reality that Christians in America have not yet grasped is that their individual behavior can destroy an entire body. What I'm doing is only hurting me. It's not hurting anybody else. That's false. For God's temple is sacred, his people. It's not the building. It's not your body. It's the people of God. When Paul uses this, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And Carson says this, this calls us to thoughtful self-examination and quiet repentance. Father, Father, bring your Holy Spirit into our hearts today. Fill us with your spirit. We know your spirit is in each and every individual Christian this morning. Fill our hearts Bring us contrition. Show us where we as individuals are destroying the body. Where we as individuals are failing. And where we are destroying your body. Bring in conviction that we might not be destroyed by you. But that we might handle your church, your body with care. As ambassadors of your kingdom here on earth. Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can do. All of this yelling is for naught. Holy Spirit, if you don't impact their hearts, do your work. Bless it through the reading of your word. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to read the entire chapter, then I'm going to explain it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're following from last week. It's one big argument in the first four chapters of the book. And we want to follow this argument. So that the word but here. So one of, the, one of the major obstacles to reading and understanding the word of God. Is that we have to understand that the word of God was not written with chapters and verses. Those were added later. They're added for your benefit. But this was a letter. What was expected to be done is that someone... The leader of the church, the pastor of the church would get up and read the word of the apostle. And there was expectation that what the apostle had said, there would be a real change in the body. But we don't have time for that. 
But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. The word but connects the last thought. The last paragraph, the last thought that we were talking about was that the natural man perceiveth not the things of God, neither can he know them, for the things of God are things that are spiritually understood. They are spiritually discerned. And if you don't have the spirit living in you, you don't understand the things of God. Not only do you not understand them with your head, but you especially, where it counts, don't understand them with your heart and with your hands. You don't put them into practice. And now Paul says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. That is an insult. Paul is insulting them. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife, strife means quarreling. Quarreling means trying to show that the other person is wrong and that you're right. That you are not of the, he says here, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Notice that that's asked in a question. The reason why it's asked in a question is because every Christian ought to know that, that it, it is right. That every Christian ought to know better. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Merely human is the same as being someone who has not converted to Christianity. There are mere humans and there are mere Christians. And the difference between them is that one is dead in trespasses and sin and the other is alive in Christ Jesus with the Holy Spirit living in them. And they look and act differently. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants is what they are through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. I want you to get this image in your head this morning. That's not a very beautiful job. It's dirty, it's monotonous, and really you get no glory when the plant comes up. All you did was throw some seed on the ground, and all the other person who came behind you was, did was water it, but you did nothing to produce its growth. You didn't make the seed, you didn't make the water, and you didn't make the process for growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. They're the same. They just do different jobs, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That is to say that if you're not building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, you're not building a church. And just because you say Christ doesn't mean you've built a church. The question is what you said, is it visible in what you're doing? That is, after all, the entire context of what Paul's talking about. I couldn't address you as mature. Why? Because they're acting and living like infants. But guess what? They're still, they're still Christians. 
Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones or wood or hay or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Don't get caught up in what they are building. Don't get caught up in the building materials. That's not the point. The point is that whatever you're building with will one day reveal itself when God comes to judge. But if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. I thought we didn't receive rewards. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you will receive rewards for your work in the kingdom of God. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, we can if we want, and we will be wrong in doing so. Snatch that verse out of its context, and as parents who have a good heart, we can beat our, browbeat our children into convincing them that they ought not to get tattoos. Or have earrings, according to this passage right here. But guess what? It has nothing to do with what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about a misuse and abuse of God's church. Let no one deceive himself if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. That is not that he should become foolish, but that he should become a fool by accepting the gospel. Which is the wisdom and power of the cross of God. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and interpretation of his word. Let's look at this passage together. Look at the first four verses. Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. I put up here this question. Can Christians behave like non-Christians? I want to give you an answer that I think is the appropriate answer. And whenever someone asks you this question, and whenever you ask this question, I want you to hear my words echoing and reverberating in the back of your head. And it is this. Yes, unfortunately, wretchedly, disgustingly, yes. Can Christians... Behave like non-Christians? Yes, unfortunately. Wretchedly, disgustingly, yes. Paul answers the question here. These people are not non-Christians. They are infants in Christ. But they are not new believers. They're believers who have not grown up. Though they're behaving like people without the Spirit, they're still Christians. They're just behaving like people who aren't Christians. Some of us are saying, oh, whew, thank God. So all of this sin in my life I can excuse now because you have said that, oh, we can be a Christian and not a God-glorifying Christian. Or as we make the distinction in our world today, I'm a Christian, I'm just not a born-again Christian. 
there is no distinction. Or we use this word, I'm a Christian, but I'm a carnal Christian. I'm going to talk to you about carnal Christianity. In fact, right now, what does this passage mean? It means that some Christians never grow up. And this is not the same as what we have come to call the carnal Christian. I.e., this is what we mean when we use the word carnal Christian. It is a person who had a conversion experience, but has never since demonstrated that he or she is a believer, either in behavior or in belief. Carnal Christian. Uh, he was saved at a youth rally once, never been a member of a church, never darkened the church again, never comes back. Doesn't really believe the word of God, but he hopes that that confession that he made when he was young, when he went down the aisle, was legitimate. And we call that a carnal Christian. And a lot of us wear that as a badge of safety. It's like our life preserver. It's like, I know I shouldn't be going swimming in this shark-infested water, but hey, I have this life preserver on. It's going to keep me safe from the great white's teeth. What are you talking about? What are, you, what are you talking about? Like, it's like when we put blankets over us when we're kids and we're scared. We think the blankets are going to cover us. Listen, if there's a guy in your closet with a knife, he's going to stab right through that blanket. It's false security. But it makes us feel so good and safe. Now the murderer can't get me. What are you talking about? You walk down an aisle and you don't have any evidence. Why are, you, why are you safe today? Why do you feel saved? There's no evidence. But the carnal Christian, believe it or not, and I hate to say this, but he's the sort of a Christian who the church, for the church, is less of a nuisance. The carnal Christian at least doesn't come to church, or what we mean when we say carnal Christian. And by the way, carnal Christians, listen to me, they're pro they're pro according to the definition I just gave, they're probably not Christian. They're Christian in name only, but not Christian before God. In fact, Paul tells them in the second letter, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or, you, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. If you sit down and you examine your life and you fail to meet the test, you are not a Christian. And the test is, do you have any kind of evidence? And carnal Christians really don't, by how we use the word. But you know what? They don't really care either. They're living their life however they want, and they're staking eternity on that life preserver of a moment. I hate to say this. I know I, know I said that already, but I, I really do love to say it, actually. The sort of Christian that had a conversion experience but who never darkens the door of the church again is a far less nuisance to the church than infants in Christ because these little babies refuse to grow up all the while sapping the body of Christ of all its energy to do for them what by now they ought to be doing for themselves. That's what Paul's talking about here. Oh, my word. Paul's writing to a church that's full of infant Christians. They haven't grown up. At least the carnal Christian doesn't come. 
He doesn't waste our time. I mean, I'm warning the carnal Christian who may come across, who may by accident have fallen into this church today, but for those of you who are infant Christians, you are sapping the church. That's what Paul says. These little babies, they got to be fed milk. Pay attention to the analogy. Those of you who are parents, when you feed your baby milk, you ever done that? You ever had a child that just won't eat? They wake up throughout the night constantly and they need to be nursed and you got to feed them. And they sometimes don't want to eat. They don't know what they want. They're crying about everything. If everything were different, their life would be different. And all the while, you're losing sleep and you're fighting with everyone else because the baby is an infant. And the problem is not when you're a child because we don't blame children for being children. They're infants after all. We have to do this. But when they grow up and we still are doing this, it is dysfunctional. It is a waste of time and it is sapping the energy of the church. I'm telling you people who are watching these these pews get more empty. Let me tell you, if you are not here for the long haul, good riddance. If you don't want the things of God to be nourished on the meat, listen, you'll be better for it. You'll waste a lot less time breastfeeding, nursing, and changing dirty diapers of people who ought to by now know better. That's what Paul says. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but I had to waste my time talking milk to people who should by now be grown up. And even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh, he says. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, you're not, are, he says, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? In other words, the effect that Paul's going for here is that he ought to be striking a chord with you. It ought to be offensive to you. You ought to leave church in one of three ways. Sad, mad, or glad. Unfortunately, the church in America has forgotten the sad part. Because they're afraid you'll never come back. Because babies, you force feed babies. You try and put meat down their mouth. I can't handle it. I need Prince next week. I need pyrotechnics. Paul says, are you not being merely human? The burden of taking care of infants. We can grow up. Can Christians behave like non-Christians? Yes, unfortunately, wretchedly, disgustingly, yes. Yes, you're saved. But everyone else thinks you're a jerk. You ever seen that bumper sticker? It's one of the, my favorite bumper stickers. Jesus may love you, but everyone else thinks you're a jerk. Yeah, you're saved. But grow up is what Paul's saying. So Paul then goes into two analogies, 
And one is agriculture and the other architectural. This was a note that D.A. Carson gave to us, uh, gave to me this week. And I'm going to play off of this and use it. He says here that the first in verses 5 through 9, this is an agricultural metaphor or analogy. He says here, what then is Apollos or what is Paul? Well, they're servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. That's the the main thought right here. But here he's going to explain what it's like so that we grasp it. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth so that neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God is the one who gives the growth. In other words, listen to what he's saying. I don't care about someone throwing seeds on the ground or watering them. I care about the food that it produces. Oh, but I watered. Great. Was there any growth? No. Well, then what are you telling me for? Bill Parcells, not what I would call a Christian pastor by any stretch, but he used a very powerful illustration. He used to say, don't tell me about the pain, just show me the baby. In other words, don't tell me about all the hard work that you put in this week to be a New York Giant. Did you win? No. Oh, well, who cares? I watched these young basketball players today. Man, you ought to see them. They're so cool. They walk out to the basketball court. They got the new LeBron Jameses. And their socks are pulled up appropriately. They're not too high. They're not too low. But they know how to crinkle them just right. And they make sure that their pants fit just right. They're not very low because that's old school. They actually like to have them just a little bit higher. They wear their jerseys tight to show their muscles. They wear bands, multiple bands. This band represents my mom. This band represents my dad. And this band, well, it represents me because I'm the top. I don't know, something stupid like that. And then they get on the court. And boy, they're breaking ankles and they're going through and they're and they're moving the guy and the guy falls backwards and everybody on the side goes, oh, oh, and then they get up to the rim and they miss the shot. I try to tell these sweet babies, these sweet young people, listen to me. It don't matter how you get there. Did you get there? No. Then who cares? Who cares? Oh, I went to this church and that pastor, you should have seen the way that they did that, that, that display. You should have seen the, yeah, yeah. Do you love Jesus more? Well, no, but the Easter thing was cool. You wasted your time. Did you grow? No, but you should have seen the way they were sowing and they were watering. I mean, who cares? About the way it looks, who cares about the leaders? If you're still living in your sin, if you haven't matured one bit, you ought not to come here and be so excited about what you're going to see. You ought to be cautiously, cautiously optimistic that you're going to hear the truth and that the truth is going to penetrate because God's word is not called flashing lights. It's called a sword and it penetrates to your heart and it goes right past all of the bones and marrows and it is a critic of all of our thoughts and our intents. What are you doing here today? Have you come to see something to be entertained? Or have you come to leave and to grow? Who cares who's sowing? Leaders, listen to me, those who will be preaching. You sow the word of God. And then you can say this. 
Paul goes on. He says, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we're God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now, the good news and the warning to the leaders is that you work with God and you don't work in vain. That if you work with God, quoting and speaking and teaching God's word, there is real growth that can happen. If you don't, not only will there not be rewards, but there will be judgment for what you do. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Now, all of us, all of us have a responsibility to seek out our own salvation in fear and trembling. Now, Paul is talking to the leaders. He's telling them to preach the word. And so leaders, this is a a wonderful passage because it speaks to the preacher. It speaks to the leaders. It speaks to all of the leaders. And it speaks to all of the people. And both of us have a responsibility. And we are reminded that we ought to seek out our own salvation in fear and trembling. But it is God who works in us both to will and to act. If this church grows, it will be by the work of God. You say, so can I sit on my hands? Absolutely not. Stop waiting for the liver shiver. Get up and do today. Get up and serve today. Get up and commit today. It's today, not tomorrow. You're responsible. God will hold you responsible. He will say to you on that day, what did you do when you heard that message? What did you do with it? And he will judge you for what you did. But when you do obey, he will get all the glory. And you'll get none of it. Now he goes on to an architectural analogy. He says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now Paul is saying that he laid a foundation. He built a church. But that foundation was not his own. In other words, he built the church on the foundation of Jesus Christ, not on the ingenuity of the wisdom of the world. But that's how we build churches today. The most obnoxious thing to me, you know, one of the things that has been a real struggle for me in my ministry in this just in these five years has been the way that I have not resonated with millennials. And I'm apparently a part of that generation. But I see the way that they try and get you millennials. Oh boy. It's disgusting the way that you fall for it. Enterprise Church, Life Church, Elevation Church, McDonald's, Starbucks. Look at their logo, and we can put it on the back of our truck. I mean, great, great. Honestly, I don't care if you're putting all that stuff on the back of your truck. If you got a cool logo or a cool sign, and even we've been guilty of it. Listen, I was the one who led that. I wanted us to get a logo, a leaf, to kind of get this idea of growth going on. And I wanted to be cutting edge, but I didn't want to be too cutting edge. I didn't want us to change our name because, after all, the one that's going to last is the one that it's always been. It doesn't matter what kind of elevation or this or that or what kind of vision that we're trying to create. We are the Northwest Baptist Church, but our vision is growing together. But so what? Elevation to what? You know what elevation is in the church? Do you know? Do you know how to elevate in the church? Anybody know how to elevate in the church? Bring yourself low. That's how you elevate. 
He who will be first must be last, and the last will be first. If you want to be a ruler of all, you have to be a servant of all. Listen to what Paul calls himself, servant, pastor, servant. Last week I went over to Dave. I said, Dave, do me a favor. Tell, let, let's not leave first this week to go get the food. You know, that's customary in churches. Let the pastor go first and his family to get the food first. No, let, the, let, the people who, let the people who can't get there go first. That's, Dave said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Let, let them go first. Now, there was no food, and I do fault you for that. Listen, those of you who go first, you better save some for me next time. All there was was carbohydrates. The only thing left was a bone of a ham. Now, some of you are like, well, you know, you can make soup with that. Well, I don't know how to make soup. So guess what I had? Campbell's tomato soup and a grilled cheese because we didn't have any turkey at home neither. The point is you have to be a servant. I, so many people, oh, pastor, you know you can't be in the dunk tank. Watch me. It's going to be fun. Chelsea's going to come out there and she's going to knock me down with those giant softballs like Nolan Ryan. I don't know where she gets it. She didn't even throw it underhand. Who throws a softball overhand? And she just walks up and bing, knocks me down. And it's fun. And I get dunked hundreds of times. So what? Who am I? And you know what? This church ain't going to die when I leave neither. Unless you let it. Do you think I'm preaching these on accident? I'm not preaching these on accident. If I'm not done with these messages by Christmas Day, you're not going to have a Christmas Day message either. You better find another church. I'm going to preach this one. Because I don't care about the people who come once and twice a year. I care about the people who are going to be here next week. And who are going to be here when I leave. And who are going to be here when Dave and Kathleen leave. Notice that Paul doesn't say anything about staying. But Paul does say wherever you go... Wherever you go, behave this way. Don't make much of men. So he uses an architectural analogy. The building is the church, the laborers are the leaders, but the foundation is Christ. The leaders are also the laborers of God's building. But James warned all those who wish to be leaders in the church that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. By the way, very interesting that James equates leaders with teachers. Because you don't get to lead if you can't teach. But not all teachers are leaders. And not all leaders, well, all leaders should be teachers. That's the point. This, of course, is no excuse, or this is no excuse for us to not mature as believers. James himself gave a universal warning to all Christians, leaders and laymen alike, when he said, whoever is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And he adds this further caution to all believers who resist the work of the Spirit in their lives and growing up and being mature. He warns you, those of you who want to remain as infants, he says this, whoever is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? What does that mean? It means God gave us a Spirit. Now what are we doing with it? He yearns jealously over it. 
In other words, he's checking up to see what we're doing with the spirit he's given us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That is, give up yourself. Self-examination, self-sacrifice to accept God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Man, I wish they were preaching that all over America today. It's in the Bible. It's the entire book of James. And really, it's the entire book of 1 Corinthians. So we all have a response. The architect is the one God. God owns the building and God owns the field. And what we do with the field as either laborers or as builders, leaders... We will be held accountable for. And what you do, builders, or building and field, in your growth, you will be responsible for. You will be held accountable for. So now we come to the end of our passage. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 23. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, you will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Who? Who is the you? The body, the whole church. You. You. You, plural. It's plural there. It's in the plural. It's not singular. It's plural. It means you. You. All of you. Every one of you. What about me? I come in late and I sit in the very, very top of the church. And then I leave early. You. What about me? I'm here all the time and I'm busy. You. All of you. Pastors? Yes. Nursery workers? Yes. All of you. Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple? Can you imagine what God would do if he came back and found That we have left his temple in a mess? Oh my gosh. You you ever... We stayed at Edwina's house this week. Edwina, you don't know, but your house looked like a mess at one point. Edwina has this beautiful house. And it looked so bad. My kids had just literally thrown everything everywhere. There was gum dripping from your 12-foot ceilings. It was terrible. But when you came, didn't it look nice and pretty? Didn't it look nice and pretty? Kind of? What do you mean kind of? No, we worked hard. Why? Because we wanted to make sure she understood we took care of her house. You say, is that why we got to make sure we put a new air conditioner in our building? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Is that why we got to make sure we don't put tattoos on our body? No, 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 no. You're missing it. Why you got to make sure that you take care of the people and of the message. Buildings and bodies will all be consumed, but God's word endures forever. God says, do you not know you're God's temple, that his spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys his temple, destroys his body, not the building, but his people. 
And there are many ways to do this, as I showed you at the beginning. But if anyone does this, God will destroy them. For God's temple is holy. That means they're sacred. That means God cares about what's happening in this church today. And he cares what's happening in every church everywhere. Those people who abuse the churches of God will give accountable or will give accounting for that abuse. Then he goes into 18, he says, no, no one deceive himself. Because what do we do as humans? We deceive ourselves. We like to think we're better than we really are. We like to think it's better than we really is, that we're not the problem. But if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Become a fool how? By embracing what God is teaching in his word. By embracing the cross. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. You try and build this church on anything other than God's word, it's folly. Listen to what he says. He has already told us that those who try and build on any other foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, it's going to be judged. This church may have, when, when, when we leave, this church may have hundreds of people in it. It may have thousands. We may be packed. But if it's not built on the wisdom of God, if it's not built upon the folly of the gospel, it's all for nothing. I pray that God fills every single pew in this church. When the pastor is a Bible preaching and teaching pastor, oh yes. And if it takes me leaving to do that, praise God. Yeah, will that hurt the ego? Sure, but I have to repent of it. But build it on the truth. Because that will prove itself when God judges. Don't deceive yourself, for the wisdom of the world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. There may be people in here right now. Paul told the church at Ephesus that when he left, that when he left, wolves from among them in sheep's clothing, so that the people aren't necessarily coming from the outside, but that there are wolves in sheep clothing from among them that would come out and seek to devour the people. The warning here is that they will be caught in their craftiness. You're not going to get away with it. You're seeking to destroy this church now. Whether you're here or you're not, you're not getting away with it. Praise God. Everything, all of the dross will fall off when he comes to judge. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they're futile. So let no one boast in men. That is the wisdom of men, the things that promise to build churches and grow churches that are not according to the word of God. It is futile. Don't boast in it. But let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, Paul says in another place. He says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. Let me talk to you about this for just a minute. The whole church is what Paul means here by the temple. And the understanding of this metaphor is crucial to our understanding of the entire passage. The infantile Christians who think that their poor behavior is only hurting themselves, God warns 
not only in leaders, but in laymen as well, that if anyone destroys his temple, he will destroy them. Carson once again leaves us with a stern warning that the ways of destroying the church are many and colorful. In this instance, it was a congregation that was destroying the church by going and following one man over another. But don't get bogged down in the particulars that we miss the main point. The question we need to be asking ourselves today is, what are we doing to contribute to the growth of God's church? Are we sowing his seed? Are we watering with his pot? If I need a potato plant to feed me and I sow seeds for roses, it doesn't matter how beautiful the roses are when they come up. I need a potato to eat. Don't get caught up in the beauty of the folly of the world and its wisdom. You must sow the seeds of the gospel. You must water it with the teaching of the word of God. And only then do we have a promise of growth. But one further word of caution is appropriate at this point. Paul is not merely talking about the local Corinthian church. Whether these Corinthians moved to Macedonia or to Philippi, they were responsible and accountable for what they did in their churches. The idea that a person can leave one church and go to the next one in order that they may grow is fine when the Bible is not being preached truthfully. But when a person leaves one church for the prosperity of another, they are living like infantile Christians. And what most often happens is that these infantile Christians take their infantile ways from one church to another. This leaves the church they left with one less diaper to change, metaphorically speaking, and makes the next church the new loco parentis of yet another baby Christian. That is, they're responsible for the baby Christian, and they really are. What am I saying? I'm saying that the problem may not be the church or its leaders. In fact, in this case, it wasn't the leaders. Paul doesn't say that Apollos or Cephas or Peter or himself was doing anything wrong. He says it was the people who were making gods out of men who were in the wrong. What I'm saying is the problem actually might be you. In closing, Paul says, but all things belong to us. What does that mean? It means the peace that comes from knowing that Christ is victorious over every tyranny that plagues mankind belongs to us. Carson notes that there are five things that follow right after Paul or Apollos or Cephas. In other words, all of those leaders belong to us. You know, the wonderful thing about this, I, I had somebody text me this past week. He said, uh, when you move to North Carolina, he doesn't know that I'm, what I'm actually doing is I'm, I'm going to be studying. I'm, I'm, I got to finish my schooling. So we're, we're going there for that, but I won't be preaching. I won't be focusing on preaching. I want to focus on studying 
Uh, we believe that the Lord may have uh, teaching in our future in colleges, uh, but right now we have to focus on that. And this person said, if you're going to be preaching, do me a favor, make sure you send me a link to where you're going so that I can listen to your messages. And uh, that, was, that was meant to be a compliment, and I was flattered by it. But I also wanted to give a word of warning. There's pastors all over this city right now every Sunday and all over Broward County. I wouldn't say all over, but there are pastors, I know several of them, who preach the word of God, and they're yours. Paul says all are yours. We're not in competition. Matt Chandler, the pastor of the Village Church, who's meant a lot to me. John Piper, who's meant a lot to me. John MacArthur, who's meant a lot to me. Wesleyans, who I don't happen to agree with their view on salvation, necessarily their view of the doctrines of grace. They are mine. All that John Wesley has done is mine. And it's yours as well. We don't have to choose sides. You don't have to be on the John Calvin side, or the Charles Wesley, or the John MacArthur, or the... Tony Evans, all are yours. Paul says all of these, they, why? Because they all belong to God and they're all there for God's people. The next pastor who comes in, he belongs to all of us. He's not just yours. He's every church's. What does he say here? All are yours. Apollos or Cephas. Sometimes Apollos will be in the pulpit. Sometimes Cephas will be in the pulpit. Sometimes Paul will be in the pulpit. But they're all yours. You don't need to be a part of the Cephas crowd. You don't need to be a part of the Apollos crowd. They're all yours. You're fighting over something that doesn't matter, he says. He says here, not only that, but he comforts us with this last Whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. Carson points out that there are five things that are all the tyrannies of our life. We worry about our life today, what we'll eat, what we'll wear. But Jesus Christ said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. You're worrying about your job when you should be worrying about holiness. God will take care of your job. Most everything that has ever happened to you in your life, you didn't do, but God did for you anyway. So what are you worried about? You know I came to be a teacher here? I got a call from Jerry Nelson the day after I found out I wasn't getting a promotion. No, no, no. It wasn't the day after. It was the night of. Jerry didn't know anything about it. He called me up, he and Jeff Harrison, and they said... Hey, we want you to be a Bible teacher. I thought I was getting a promotion at Edwin Watson. I didn't get it. God took care of that. I didn't do anything to get it. I didn't go apply. Now, I'm not saying don't apply. I'm just saying stop worrying about it. Life is yours. Jesus promised it. Look at the flowers of the field. Solomon in all his splendor is not clothed as one of the lilies, but why are you worrying? Aren't you worth more than lilies who are here today and gone tomorrow? So Paul says, life is yours. Not only is life yours, the world is yours, but life is yours. What is life? 
purpose. You're looking for meaning and you're looking for purpose. And you want me to preach a message today about meaning and purpose in your life. But nothing could be more significant to meaning and purpose in your life than me teaching you that God has called you to be sanctified and part of his church. There's nothing more meaningful than that. Who cares if you solve cancer? Who cares if you've gained the entire world but you've lost your soul? The only thing that will count is what grows into eternal life. That's it. So Paul tells us that not only is the world ours, but so is life. One life, the life that counts, the eternal life, and the things that we do for eternal life. He says not only that, but death is ours. What does that mean? Oh, thanks, God. Woo! Things are giving us death. It means that in the midst of death, you don't have to be afraid. Why don't you have to be afraid? Because God is victor over the death grave he has delivered you from the grave don't you understand the significance that the man raised from the dead he is the first fruits of all who have followed him who trust in his name that you who will certainly die who will get cancer or who will be shot or who will be killed in a car wreck or will who die who will die of a heart attack or cholesterol or not enough vitamins or whatever the stupid things that we spend so much time and so much money worrying about to preserve a dying and decaying body and no time on our spiritual life it's all going to be caught up but God says the thing that really matters is what comes in the afterlife because that's forever we spend so much time worrying about this little tiny tiny thing that in comparison to eternity means nothing oh I gotta be healthy so I gotta get those vitamins for what you're gonna die in a car wreck say this is not an uplifting sermon it's just the truth Worry about eternal life. Paul says death is yours. You don't have to fear the grave. You ever seen lost people die? They're clinging on to what? That last moment. You ever seen Christians die? I have. It's beautiful. Why is it theirs? Because death belongs to Christ. He holds the keys to death. And he tells us that if we're in him, we will be raised to life. But not only that, now also the present or the future, they're all ours. You don't have to compete right now to be great. You are great. You are a child of God. If you have believed in Christ, you are a child of God. The present is yours. You don't have to worry about victimhood. You don't have to worry about insignificance. God says you're significant. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. Where there isn't poverty, where there is no hunger, where there is no racism, where there is no injustice. Stop worrying about the present. Not that we shouldn't fight for it here on earth, but understand that the present is ours because you are already free. When Paul was in chains in prison, he was free. And lastly, he says the future is yours. Oh, wow. 
because the future for us is eternal. Pity today when you see men and women who have sold their souls for the future here on earth. But rejoice in those who have died here on earth that they might have a future in heaven. Eternity is at stake. And the only way to get to it is by trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord. All of this is yours if, if, if. You have to meet a condition. If you are Christ, because Christ is God's. Paul was speaking to Christians, baby Christians. And I am positive that his hope was in that what he had just preached would have an effect on the baby Christian. That they would stop trying to be nursed on milk and that they would start to grow on to maturing and growing in the grace of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which challenges us. We've heard your word this morning. I, as the, the, the leader, the pastor of this church, have heard your word this morning. You and I know personally the warnings that you have given to me this week, the challenges that you have given to me, how your word has convicted me. And so, Lord, you know also today how your word has convicted the hearts of all Believers here today, those who are mature and maybe sliding into immaturity, those who are infants in Christ, Lord, I don't ask that they speak on where they've been immature, because after all, that's not what we need. If they want to confess, Lord, let them confess, but what we are looking for is real growth, real maturity that will be measured, measured when we see a church united around Jesus Christ and given up to all of the factions of men. So, Father, I pray that you do the work only you can do. All of this sweat, all of this pleading is empty if your Holy Spirit does not convict hearts. Thank you for your word. Amen.